for a while. And I actually just this morning wanted to take a moment to just address you real quick. I want to let you know that I appreciate the fact that you took time to be here with your friends and family this morning. Maybe the last time you were in church was kind of an uncomfortable experience, but I'm glad that you're here with your friends and family this morning. And I've been praying all week that God would speak to you today. So we're glad that you're here. Glad that you're here. Uh, real quick, our Christmas offering, I just want to give you a report. Um, as of last Sunday, um, we've gotten, I believe, a little over $18,000 for our special Christmas offering that we're collecting. For the, Yep, you can clap to that. Um, we've been collecting special Christmas offering for the rest of December, so I want to continue to encourage you to pray. Um, I think it's okay for me to share this. I think about 18 families have given, and then there are other anonymous gifts. I've gotten one person who wrote a, uh, gave a gift of $10,000, and another person who gave a gift of $3,000, and then there are a lot of small amounts that have been given. So thank you for those of you that have given, and we're still collecting uh, for the rest of December to make up our budget shortfall and get us started on a good note in the new year. So thank you for giving. I want to continue to encourage you and challenge you to pray about giving generously to this church. Suli, thank you so much for your testimony this morning. You got me all choked up as I was sitting listening to your story about what this church has meant for you and why you give. This morning, we're going to look at a very familiar text it's found in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you could open it. And if you don't, we normally put uh, scripture passages up on the screen. And so you'll see it up on the screen. Uh, after uh, I'm done preaching, we're taking communion. Uh, I want to encourage families to, after you take communion, go get your kids and have them join you in the sanctuary for the candlelight uh, portion, okay? Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the lineage or line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. The writer of the Gospel of Luke is a guy named Luke who is a physician, and he is known, to write, known for having writing two books, Gospel of Luke and Acts. And he gives all these kinds of details in the Gospels, and he takes the trouble to tell us about this guy, Emperor Caesar Augustus, and his desire to take a census. And what you need to know is that this isn't just background information. Emperors and census and taxes were hot topics in the Middle East during this time. When we have a census, we just fill out a boring form and send it out. When they had a census, riots broke out and people got killed. Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, gives this little nugget that happened in the early part of the church. Acts chapter 5, verse 37. Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the, what? Census. And got people to follow him. He also perished. And all those who followed him were 
scattered. Whenever there was a census, people rioted and people got killed. Why? Because census reminded everybody who ruled the world and who got crushed in the process. Now, every time Christmas season, I preach on something like this and never get people that come to me and go, Peter, I came to church on Christmas Sunday to feel good. I came to hear a warm, fuzzy sermon, you know, about be good to each other and let there be peace. I don't want to hear about emperors and taxes and, and censuses and, and people getting killed. But can I tell you something this morning? Can I tell you that it's because we've screened out emperors and censuses and people getting killed, we've missed the point of Christmas. We've missed the point of Christmas. The real Christmas story, you see, and if you've grown up in church all your life, the real Christmas story is not about some escape from a real hard, broken world filled with problems. The real Christmas story is about a God who chooses to enter in to this real world with real problems to bring salvation with skin on it. Is that good news to anybody? Somebody's clapping you this morning. This is the real Christmas story. It's about hope, joy, and peace. But you, hope, joy, and peace don't come from skirting how things really are. But as followers of Jesus, it comes from pushing through them because we believe that there is something on the other side. Hope, joy, and peace comes when you and I recognize that the real Christmas story says that we have a God who personally entered into this broken, messed up world filled with evil and justice, oppression and poverty and hunger and death and sin. And he gives his life so that at the end of this deal, evil will not have the last word. Injustice will not have the last word. Oppression, sin and death will not have the last word. That's the Christmas story. And I also want to remind you, peace. Christmas is about peace. But when you read the Bibles, peace isn't just some inner state of being where there's calm. The biblical word is shalom, which is wholeness flourishing in every way, spiritually, physically, culturally, socially, in every way, every way. See, Christmas is good news, not just for sinners in need of reconciliation with God. Although I'm going to talk about today, that's amazing, phenomenal news. But the Christmas story is good news for the thousands of refugees fleeing Syria. Christmas is good news, friends, for the millions in this country without health care. Christmas is good news for that single mom who's struggling just to put food on the table. Christmas is good news. Because he brought peace, restoration, wholeness for all creation. Is that good news? That is the Christmas story. And so in order to get there, you can't, you can't not talk about the emperors and taxes and census. Speaking of, you could tell Luke in this text compares Caesar, Jesus. Caesar, Jesus. Caesar, Jesus. Who is Caesar Augustus? 
Just quick bio so you have an understanding of the context. Caesar Augustus has already been on in, in the throne, ruling over the Roman Empire for a quarter of a century by the time Jesus is born. He rules from Britain to India, and he has done something that nobody else has done for 200 years, which is he has unified the empire. Question is, how does Caesar Augustus rule his empire? There are three ways he rules his empire. First, he rules militarily. The Romans rule the world through brute force and violence. When Jesus is born, you got to understand, Roman armies are marching through the Galilean Judean side, burning villages, enslaving the able-bodied, killing the infirm. Josephus, a Jewish historian who writes his 20-volume book, he's one of the most notable Jewish historians in the first century, says this about Titus, one of the generals who is Caesar Augustus' right-hand man. And here's an excerpt from Josephus. Men, women, and children were beaten and subjected to torture of every description and then crucified opposite walls. 500 more were captured daily. Titus hoped that the spectacle might induce the Judean to surrender for fear that continued resistance would involve them in a similar fate. The soldiers, out of rage and hatred, amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures. So great was their number that space could not be found for crosses nor crosses for the bodies. Remember, these are the same people that invented crucifixion as a demonstration effect. Crucifixion, a way of saying to them, revolt and see what happens. And the New Testament is filled with this symmetry because they're all familiar with it. Paul, in writing to the church in Galatia, says this, Christ was publicly exhibited before your eyes as what? It's a world in which Roman soldiers are crucifying anyone, anyone dare revolt. Secondly, Augustus rules economically. Caesar doesn't just rule the empire through brute force and violence. That's how he expands his empire as well. Who administers that force and violence? The military. How does Caesar maintain control of the military? He pays them. Where does he get money to pay the military? He taxes the conquered. How does he know how many people to tax in his empire? They take a census. You pay your soldiers. They make your empire bigger. It's the money of the everyday people paying their taxes so that Caesar could expand his empire. Jewish historians say the Jews near Galilee are paying anywhere from 80 to 90% taxes. 80 to 90% taxes. So Caesar could expand his empire. So imagine yourself a good Jew living in Galilee. Remember, this is an agrarian society. If you're a good Jew, you were given by your ancestors a piece of land when you came into the promised land. You farmed the land for 20 generations. But Caesar is taxing you more and more, and you can no longer 
afford to keep your land, you have to sell it. And if you're a man, you have to basically figure out other jobs and occupations and go wherever the job is. Luke takes the time to tell us that Joseph is from Nazareth. He's living in Nazareth, but he has to go back to the town of Bethlehem where he is from. Why is Joseph not living in Bethlehem where his ancestors are from? His occupation is a what? Carpenter. And he has to go wherever the job is. The whole Christmas story is birthed out of difficult economic times where the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor. Getting food is a daily struggle. So Jesus says, when you pray, say, hey, give us this day, what? Our daily bread. Someone you know or you have gotten so much debt that you don't even know what's going to happen the next day. And Jesus says, pray this way, forgive us our what? That's as we for see the New Testament is filled with language that gets to difficult economic times. I'm wondering if anybody sitting here on a Christmas morning Eve could relate to the Christmas story. Does anybody in here know what it's like to lose your job? Does anybody in here know what it's like to not be able to know where am I going to come this meal to feed my family? Does anybody know what it's like to lose your home? Does anybody know? what it's like to think about what's going to happen tomorrow. Then you can relate to the Christmas story, the context. But Caesar Augustus finally rules another way, and that is ideologically. Let me put up some titles up on the screen for you. Divine, Son of God, God, God from God, Redeemer, Liberator, Lord, and Savior of the world. If you're a good church kid, you grew up going, that's Jesus. Nah, before Jesus ever born, before he even utters a word, before Paul comes on the scene, these are titles given to who? Caesar Augustus. These are titles for Caesar Augustus in the ancient city of Preen, which is modern-day Turkey. There's an inscription in an old temple, and the inscription about Caesar Augustus, and here's what the inscription says. The good news about the birthday of a divine child who will save the world from destruction by establishing permanent peace. By 9 BC, people are calling Caesar Augustus the savior of the world for ending 100 years of unrest and 20 years of civil war. The parliament in Rome declares him God incarnate on earth. Temples are being built in his honor. Prayers and sacrifice are being offered to the God Augustus. You've heard of poet Virgil? Virgil says this about Augustus. The one who is to come will be the divine king of salvation for whom mankind has waited. People are referring to Augustus as the one who is to come, the divine king of salvation The people have been waiting to come to earth. Caesar Augustus is not just the savior of Rome. But he's a savior of humanity, which means that to profess allegiance to another is treason. Do you remember what the early Christians are walking around saying? Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Roman officials throughout the book of Acts are rounding up Paul and others for act of what? Treason. Do you see the context in which the people of God are living in? 
It's a world in which Caesar is Savior and Lord. And you're told as a follower of God that salvation is found in no one else. And there's no other name under heaven which you must be saved. Roman soldiers are walking into your villages. And they're saying, Caesar is Lord. And if you said, yes, Caesar is Lord, your village was made a worship site for the temple or for, 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 the, for the divine worship of Caesar. But if you had the audacity to say, Caesar is not Lord, then you were either killed or tortured or enslaved. This is the world in which the first Christians are living in. And maybe you could relate. These people have got to have waited for the Savior, Messiah, for 400 years, and doubt begins to creep in. God, if you're so good, why is Caesar still on the throne? God, if you're so good, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? God, if you're so good, why does evil and injustice still rule today? God, if you're so good. And can anybody relate to this? Eventually, despair gives way to doubt. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? The whole Christmas story it's an environment which people are going, are you, are you there? Do you care? In verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in, the, in, in a palace in Rome. Some dude is walking around thinking that he's what? He's Savior, he's Lord, he's Redeemer, he's God. And in a small corner of the most powerful empire among the most powerless people, a baby is born. Surely that can't be the Messiah. Surely that can't be the Messiah. If the Messiah is going to come, he's going to be born in a royal court and be given a royal upbringing. But I've got some news for you today. God achieves his purposes by doing the exact opposite of what we might expect. Everything about, the, everything about Jesus turns the value system of the world upside on its head. And nowhere is this reversal seen more clearly than his arrival. His arrival says something about who he is and what he's about. His arrival says that we don't have a strong God who comes to strong people, who sends a strong Messiah, who comes to strong people who not obey. We have a strong God who comes to weak people who are too weak to obey. We have a God who comes and says, it's the humble who will be open to the kingdom, not the proud. It's the hungry who will be filled, not the self-sufficient. Church, everything about that birth declared to the whole world, when he comes, Everything that the world says is going to be flipped upside down. And nowhere is this seen. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Then next verse, verse 8. Then there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, I, if you've come to any Christmas services, you know that every time I get to this, I get really emotional because, because, because there's no better portrait or picture to me of the 
gospel than what we see here. Detail, detail, detail. Uh, most shepherds and sheep are not being grazed at night. You graze them at, in the day and then you bring them back into the pen at night. And many Old Testament commentators actually notice here that these are shepherds who are watching their flock at night out in the field nearby. Why? Why? These weren't just regular old shepherds watching regular old sheep. These are shepherds, listen to this, who are specifically in charge of caring for sheep that people bought on their way to Jerusalem to atone for their sins. You've heard how the shepherds were despised and of the lowly. Here's the reason why. There's essentially a religious ban on them. Why? Because of what they did 24-7, caring for these sheep, they were never ceremonially clean enough to enter into the presence of God. They could never keep up the meticulous ceremonial laws that man instituted so they could go in and be atoned for their sins. So imagine the dilemma, the irony. Imagine the irony. Imagine the irony. Here you are caring for sheep that other people could buy so they could go get their sins atoned for. But you have no way of getting your sins atoned for because of the religious rules of man. You have no way, like some of you this morning, of knowing, where do I stand with God? Does God accept me? Does, is God pleased with me? You have no way of knowing because of religious rules that have been instituted. And I know, I know that on a day like this this morning, there is somebody here that walked in today and you are at a place going, I don't know where I stand with God. And if someone asks you why, you say, I'm not living right. I haven't been living right. You don't know how long it's been since I've been to church. You might even say, I'm not a good person or I don't follow the rules well. This is why what we see next not only blows me away, but I could preach on this every Sunday, although I won't, okay? And I'm going to accentuate certain words for you, even though I don't think Luke does. Look at verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people who are the first people to hear the good news of the gospel. Kings, emperors, morally upright, the religious. It's who? People like you, people like me. Is that good news to anybody? The good news comes. To those who are sitting there going, I don't know where I stand with God. Why? I'm not a good person. I can't keep up with the rules. You don't know how long it's been since I've been to church. The gospel, God says, is coming to them first. And the angel says, you don't have to get all cleaned up and then get yourself all together before you go to God. Just get up and go. The good news of the gospel is this. Jesus didn't say, come to me, all who are really good at keeping the rules. Come to me, all who've got their stuff together. Jesus said, come to me, all 
who are weary, all who are not very good at keeping rules, all who don't know what it's like to be morally right, because I lived and died for you. Is that good news to anybody? My prayer is that this will never, ever get old to you and to me. That every time we look at that cross, we would be reminded of who the gospel is for. The gospel of Jesus Christ says the only requirement, the only requirement for coming to him is just come messy. Come with your stuff. Because the gospel says if God was willing to step into the mess that was our world, he is willing to step into the mess that is our lives. Come on now. So I'm telling you, for some of y'all sitting there going, oh, that's old news. I've heard it a thousand times. There is somebody in here today. I'm going to give you an opportunity later on to respond. You're sitting here going, I'm not very good. I'm not very good at keeping the rules. I can't. The good news of the gospel, Jesus doesn't say, get yourself all together, start obeying the rules, start doing stuff right before. He says, come as you are with your mess, with your dysfunction, with your issues. Because I can do something. And verse 11, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Do you know why you sit there and go, because mm-hmm. preachers taught you, okay, to listen to this text from a 21st century. He is savior, he is Lord. Listen to the context. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And the shepherds are going, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 no. There's a dude in Rome who says he's savior, who says he is Lord. You must be mistaken. And the angel is literally saying, the clock is ticking on that dude. The clock is ticking on that dude. There's a baby being born who has got something to say about who's in charge. Is this good news? I can't do better than that, so I'm just gonna have to. This is amazing news! This is why a little peasant girl, a little peasant girl, her name is Mary, starts the revolution of all revolutions. And what does she say in her song? Don't look at it from a 21st century. What does she say? Listen to her words. Mary says in chapter 1, verse 46 of Luke, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. Them are fighting words. Oh, man, those are fighting words. A 15-year-old peasant girl starts the revolution of all revolutions by saying what? Caesar ain't Lord. He not Savior. He thinks he is. I've seen what Caesar can do. He rules from Britain to India. But I've seen what my God can do. (laughs) Oh. And people take Mary's lead and they start saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. By the way, do you know why? Can you see why the early Christians were killed for having a copy of the book of Luke? 
There he says, there's another king on the way. And he's going to rule over an entire different kingdom. Look how utterly different this king is. Church, the shepherd language, by the way, is unavoidable in Luke chapter 2. Do you see that? Let me just, two minutes, let me just take you into something deep. The Bible says that Joseph was in the lineage of who? Lineage of who? David. David is perhaps the greatest Old Testament figure in the nation of Israel. Most people think there will be no Israel without David. David is an Old Testament deliverer, savior. Do you remember what David was before he became king? He was a shepherd. Come on, somebody. He's a shepherd. David is a shepherd. And here's what we know about shepherds. We know about what they know is that they don't have much, but what they do have, they protect they're known to walk around their sheep at night when there's no natural protection from the predators. And when the angels show up, the shepherds are walking, watching over their flock at night. And the Bible says, the Bible says that David was a man after what? God's own heart. The message, here is a king. But he is not like Caesar. He is your shepherd king. He not like Caesars. He doesn't use his power to oppress for his glory, his fame. He, shepherds were known to literally, real record show, lay down their lives for their sheep. And John chapter 10 says, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who what? Lays down my life for the sheep. Luke is saying, here is your king, but he is your shepherd king. He is not like Caesar. He will not rule with oppression, with power. He will come, and his heart actually is bent towards the weak, the marginalized, and the poor. His kingdom will not be about injustice. It'll be about justice, compassion, and love. Israel, receive your king, your shepherd king. He is the ultimate David. Now, church, how will the world know that the king that we worship is our shepherd king. Here's how. He says now he has millions of followers, millions of followers, millions of followers all over the world who will now, with their mission, make the invisible kingdom of this king visible. How will the world know that his heart is bent towards the poor? How do you treat the poor? How will the world know that he is a shepherd king who leverages his power to serve the weak? How do you leverage your power to serve the weak? He is a king who will be about justice and compassion and mercy. How will the world know that we serve a shepherd king? We don't just have the message. We are the message. Verse 15, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. So one angel turns into thousands of angels. Hey, I wish I could have been there. I so wish I could have been there. All of heavenly host appears. And their announcement is glory to God 
in the highest. Every single word of that is intentionally chosen by God. Glory to God in the highest. In other words, no one, nothing on earth is deserving of glory than God. No emperor, no king, no ruler is more deserving of glory than God. So let me ask you a question on this Christmas. Does your life say that? Does my life say glory to God in the highest? Or does our life say glory to my career in the highest? Glory to my children in the highest? Glory to money in the highest? Glory to success? Glory to achievement? Glory to all these things in the highest? Does our lives say glory to what? God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men and whom his favor rests. Can I just, I'm almost done. Can I just say this? There are tons of things that have been misinterpreted. Just give you a couple of things. The, the, the wise men, when they came, they didn't come to see a new info. They came about two years after the birth, by the way, of Jesus. Did y'all know that? Did y'all know that? So when they came, they came to see a toddler. And they actually believe that he was God. That's pretty miraculous. Have you ever seen a two-year-old? <laughs> okay, all right, that's, that's right. The other thing, all kinds of, I, I wish I could go back. He wasn't born in a barn, he's born in a cave. The, 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 the nice sanitized version, he is born in a cave and Jesus, son of God, is laying in a feeding trough of animals. Here's another one of these. So people go, this, we, we think glory to God on our purse. We think this means let's just be nice to each other. Let's be nice to each other. That's what Christmas is. Let's be nice to each other. Peace. That's not what this means. This literally says this. Peace among those with whom his favor rests. Or peace among those with whom he is pleased. Who is God pleased with? How do we become pleasing to God? See, see, you can come on up, brother. Oh, peace is available to those with whom God is pleased with. Do you realize that up to this point, up to this point, here's who was pleasing to God. Up to this point, it was perfect obedience to the law that was pleasing to God. Up to this point, it's perfection to the law of God that <laughs> makes you pleasing to God. Up to this point, it is following the letter of the law that made one pleasing to God. Can I ask you a question? Are we good at following the law? Are we good at following the rules? Are we good at doing what we know we should do? Answer is no, no, no. The issue isn't ignorance of not knowing what to do. The issue is our heart and our will. Here is the message of Christmas that comes. Jesus Christ comes and this baby changes that equation once and for all. Because it is no longer God is pleased with those who obey the law perfectly. It is now God is pleased with those who put their trust in Jesus who perfectly obeyed the law. God is pleased with 
Those who placed their trust in the one who lived the life we should live and died the death we should have died. And when we place our trust in his perfect work and righteousness, it is then that we become pleasing to God. Is this good news to anybody? Do you know what that means? That means that if you are a child of God who is pressed in and placed your trust and your faith in His righteousness, in His works, in His goodness, our Heavenly Father's right now face is beaming towards you. It's beaming towards you, CC. It is beaming towards, but I don't feel like it. Not the issue, but I have been very good. Not the issue. If you're a child of God, Colossians 3 says, my life is now hidden with Christ in God. So when God sees me, he sees me as he sees his son, Jesus. His face is beaming towards you. My life is hidden with Christ in God. And where there is pleasure, there is peace. Does anybody need that word and that message this morning? Does anybody sitting here go, 2017 was a disaster? Anybody? Anybody? 2017 was an utter disaster, personally, professionally, in every way. I want you to know something. I want you to know something. When your heavenly Father is looking down at you right now because of what Christ has done, His face is beaming towards you. And He is saying, you could not be more pleasing to me today. I want you and me to let that anchor and motivate us towards mission. Please, 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 whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, do not walk out of here. Do not walk out of here and try and earn his acceptance. Try and earn his pleasure. Try and earn, earn, earn his approval. Try and earn by doing stuff, by working for justice, by doing, because that turns toxic and ugly really, really fast. Whatever you do, I beg you, I implore you, I exhort your church family. Live your life with the conviction. I am already pleasing to God. I am already accepted in God. My life is already hidden with Christ in God. And that will motivate me to live my life for compassion and justice. Can I get an amen? I implore you. Do not walk out of here wondering, questioning whether he is pleasing to you. So I got to earn and I got to... His face, if you are a child of God and your life is in one Christ, is beaming towards you. Let me end with this. Do you know what happened to Caesar Augustus' kingdom? He died. He died. You can read about him in history books. His kingdom is in trouble. His son Tiberius, what happened to Tiberius? Do you remember? He 
died. His son died. His son died. His son died. So what was the main slogan of the first church movement? He what? Lives. May you and I be reminded today that we serve a king whose kingdom goes on and on and on and on and on. And there's nothing that Satan, this world, or anybody, anything can do to thwart that kingdom. Let me leave you with Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and We worship a king today who says that infallible hope for your life and my life is possible because he lived, died, and rose and now sits at the right hand of God. And as he came once, he will come back again and make all things new. Close your eyes with me.